Hello. It's been a while. It has. It's been been 12 days. Since our last recording. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, apologies if if you're wondering why it took so long for this episode to come out. I was just in the middle of moving and I had a really busy week, uh, a bunch of productions. So, yeah. And I finally have a desk. Oh, yes. Very yeah, exciting. I have a, it's, when Nicole and I moved into our previous home, it was like our first home, right? And that was not set up to be a place to work from. It was more like you were at the office, you came home and you chilled and you went to bed. Right, they you probably also didn't even just, eat at home. They didn't even have like a table in their house. Yeah. Like there was, it did not exist a single table until, and then we bought like a coffee table. But that's pretty typical for Hong Kong homes. Like not every home has a table. I think every home has a table. Mm. Where do you eat dinner? I mean, we had a side table. Okay, I'm rolling my eyes over here. Anyway, Eugene's yeah. come up in life. He has a functioning work situation anyways that is uh good news i actually feel way more productive now because when it's like 3 a.m i feel like i'm actually still able to work versus before 3 a.m sitting on a couch i'm like yeah i'm not tired i don't want to sleep i don't want to work i get that because you have a work setting i think that's so important well my work setting is my dining table right now until my actual okay but like for the meantime you can sit at your dining table and be like in work Eugene mode and then you can walk away from the dining table and sit in the living room and be in like leisure fortnight Eugene mode. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, should we get into it? This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help keep us going, you can support us on patreon.com slash makein. Do you want to go first? Sure, let's do it. So Eugene shared a list of options for this week's making it up in the discord. I did not even realize that one of the links he shared came from me until about two hours before recording this. And I also picked it. So that tells you where my brain is at. This article comes from the newsletter Blackbird Spy Plane. And the title is Would Socialism Kill Cool Clothes? What it is, it's an interview with Young Chomsky. And I'm going to sound like such an old person when I read quotes from this newsletter because I don't have the, I don't even know. I do not have the tone of voice to pull off this kind of writing style. But this first question in their interview, which is essentially the crux of the whole conversation, is, is it contradictory, hypocritical even, for me to cop popping joints with such panache while simultaneously loathing an economic system in which working people are immiserated and the social safety net is strutted, just so swaggerless billionaire clowns and their politrical 
henchmen can amass obscene wealth to spend on corny shit. Simplified, it means like, can you participate in fashion and consumerism and also be socialists? Okay. Like, do those two things match? Are they compatible? Yes. Are, Are they, they compatible? Do they, can they live together? And no. I'm not going to, I, there's kind of like a lot going on with this week's quotation marks subject because Eugene sort of compiled three different articles together. There's that this Blackbird spy plane. Yeah. yeah. Thematically, they all matched. Thematically, they all matched. Let's talk about the theme. The theme being, how is the internet used for political views? Could you say that's the theme? Or how are young people influenced in political ways by online material? How's that? Uh, I might even simplify it. I'd be, I would look at it as what are the, the incoming political ideologies of the youth? Right? No, All I right. don't think that's correct. You well, saw about, my face. <laughs> yeah, I saw Sharice's face. For me, the whole thing is wrapped around the current landscape for political ideologies and how it influences the youth. And it's okay. fashion, it's from memes. Sure. Right. Yeah. I would argue my word choice makes it way more, way more complex, but. No, I mean, I agree with the part where how are different ideologies being adopted by young people via the internet and memes. But the reason why I made that face is because you said incoming ideologies and none of the ideologies are new. Okay. Like socialism yeah. is not this new political ideology. It's just. Yeah, that's fair. What are young people gravitating towards right now? They're not new ideas in, in the least. It's like just what is sort of resurfacing. What are people attracted to? So there's this article, which is this interview with Young Chomsky about fashion and socialism. How are those two compatible? Um, and then there's this article in The Guardian by Joshua Citarella called Marxist Memes for TikTok Teens. And it's kind of an outline of how young people become radicalized on the Internet. And whether the left wing side of things can use that to their advantage to spread their ideals, their agenda. And the last article is about Silicon Valley and how Gen Z, there's this group of young people excited about technology, getting into tech, the ages of like 17 to 21. And they formed this discord group called Gen Z Mafia. And it's this. I guess, support group and network where they are trying to dismantle things that they don't like about tech establishment. Okay. So how do you want to do this? I can give an outline of all three, but is that productive? Yeah. I don't think so. I think you should just like maybe focus back on the original piece around fashion because that was your personal interest. And then if other points are relevant, we can introduce. It. I think for me, I was sort of equally interested in this first piece about fashion with young Chomsky. And then also the third piece about Gen Z mafia. I think the piece in the middle, because I think this middle article, the second of the three is kind of just like a description of something we already know, which is that on the internet, people get radicalized. Do, do you agree with that statement? Yes. Okay. Very easy. Easy one. On the internet, people get radicalized. They start by looking at relatively mundane content that leans in one direction and then 
platforms lead them down rabbit holes and they become funneled into more fringe and radical and controversial conspiracy like beliefs. Okay. Um, And then the argument of this guardian piece is essentially how can left wing left leaning media, culturally progressive entities use the radicalization of the internet to their advantage. And I don't really like that kind of, I don't really like using the devil's tools necessarily, but I also think that's why like left wing progressives don't get the same kind of like raw energy that right wing sides do. (sighs) Okay. I'm trying to think like, yeah, yeah, in terms of the whole argument, like my biggest takeaway in terms of the way the world of politics has influenced all aspects of culture is just perhaps not necessarily politics in general, because I don't think politics were ever this divisive, but by virtue of it becoming a binary thing through social media and through its, our need to create headlines that cut through the noise, it has basically pitted us, us versus them. Yeah. When traditionally, I think there was more of a range and spectrum of how you looked at the world and you didn't have to agree on everything, but it feels everyone is either you disagree with them or you agree with them. And there is so no like, I agree with you there, but I disagree with you here. Yeah, I think that's exactly why I feel uncomfortable with what the guard funnel essentially, because I disagree with the concept of the funnel in the first place with the fact that the internet radicalizes people in any direction. Like it shouldn't be going in just one direction or the other. Like you said, it shouldn't just be binary. And I think that's why I do like that first piece, the Blackbird spy plane piece, because I think it is, it's provides more nuance, you know, and that question that they ask about like, is it hypocritical to criticize capitalism while also spending money on clothes? I think young Chomsky's answers are fair, you know, and he's not like, you can never buy clothes again, but he's also not like, oh yeah, spend whatever you want and indulge yourself in fashion. And actually what he says is, I can give his exact answer. I think it's good. I'd say there's absolutely a contradiction between loving Johns and hating capitalism because capitalism is characterized by contradictions, but I don't think there's a hypocrisy. We need to understand that living under capitalism means living with contradictions and trying to twist ourselves into knots to argue otherwise is a loser's game. There's no living outside of capitalism. So you could try to go off the grid and make your own clothes and try not to participate at all in exploitation, which would be rad props to you, but most people aren't there. And so throughout this interview, I think he provides similar tonality in his answers that go towards this direction of we're trying to improve society, but we exist within it. So what are our effective weapons? What can we use effectively, even while understanding that we live within this environment? One question he asked, which I think is really important for fashion consumption, is he challenges people to think to themselves when they're about to buy something. Why do I want this? What is it in my soul that's telling me that I need this or desire this? Am I expressing something about myself or was this desire placed in me by marketers? And I think that's a really hard one. Yeah, go ahead. There's a lot of things in this world that without framework has devolved into a certain thing, right? Like one's inability Mm -hmm. to have 
grasp a grasp of their financial health leads them down a certain path. Our inability to have a framework around consumption leads us down a certain path, right? And I, I, I look at this whole sort of landscape and I really question whose benefit is it in the current way that we live our lives? Is it to have a framework on decision making? Yeah. Like these mental models that we, like within the making community, really embrace, they make our ability to consume stuff a lot easier, right? What do you mean? Easier in terms of making decisions. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Like everything you mentioned, do I need this? Blah, blah, blah. Do I have um, the ability to like find it a better option? Do I need a better option? Blah, blah, blah. Am I expressing myself or is this marketing? Yeah. Yeah. Like you said, that's a mental framework. Okay. I'm on board. Those mental frameworks themselves are maybe things that we've built up over time. But in the grand scheme of this right now, on the very sort of like uh, foundational pillar of culture and society where the mainstream lies, what is the incentive for someone to go in and and educate them on a mental model framework? There really isn't, right? And it's it's really interesting because so earlier today I was talking with Scott and he sent me this article from Charlie Munger and it actually plays into this. It was mentioning how Buffett's business partner, Charlie Munger, has long been aware of the power incentives. Show me the incentive and I will show you the outcome. Never ever think about something else when you should be thinking about the power of incentives. So this is more in the context of business, but this is just as applicable. It's like the incentive for you as a consumer to be more educated. What is it? It doesn't seem like it's that obvious end or it actually is a tangible benefit. To the consumer? To the consumer, maybe. To me as the individual? Like I think on, the, on, a, on, a, on a larger scale, like I think there's competing forces here, right? One person's trying to sell, one person's trying to buy. It doesn't benefit the person selling. Yes, exactly. It doesn't. It, it doesn't help. There's no reason why a brand would teach their consumers to think in this way because that would probably damage their yeah. sales because you would be a more considered consumer. And in terms of the buyer, I actually like the beginning. The introduction to Blackbird Spy Plane, the newsletter, says that if you're reading this, then you care about the earth and you care about the people on the earth and you love fashion, you know, and those are the those two things. So you basically you have to already be those two things in order to be receptive yeah. to this mental framework. And I don't know. You can't really get people to that place, I feel like. Like, I feel like that's just something that is going to be about you as an individual or not. Mm-hmm. Inter- like, those two characteristics of caring about the earth and the people on it and loving fashion. You know, so there, there's a very specific audience here. I don't know how. I mean, this comes down to what I, I really see as the, the argument between tangible and intangible. It's so much easier for me to sell something. And I mean, sell could be anything. It could be a product, an idea, whatever. When it's tangible and I can picture and see it, it becomes far more difficult when it's intangible and I need to use my imagination. And on top of that, when you and I are sharing ideas, we also have to ensure we're on the same wavelength. You might think I understand what you're saying and likewise, but the reality is that we might have small micro interpretations that actually veer us off in different directions 
Oh, definitely. So that is in itself like the, the fundamental challenge that comes with anything around trying to create these mental models or frameworks because at scale, they're actually incredibly hard to push out. I think this is such an existential conversation right now. I think the topic itself is pretty totally, existential though. You're totally right because just the idea of a political ideology is so unwieldy and difficult to pin down. Socialism to Blackbird's biplane and to Young Chomsky and socialism to like me and to Eugene and to everyone listening has like a different definition. So it's really strange actually to have a conversation about socialism or any ideology because we're all just subscribing like our own definition to it in this conversation yeah, exactly. but it's like impossible to sit down and establish like a groundwork before every complicated conversation yeah it is but I, it, it's kind of like i mean the biggest problems in our world are arguably intangible problems right they're not, yeah. they're not the ones that we can all picture and agree upon. Like you and I can look at a shoe and we can do a survey on what we like and don't like. And the survey results will dictate how we move forward, right? We yeah. could disagree on, yeah. on political ideology, but how do you encapsulate the next steps and move forward? Yeah. I mean, I, I've just been thinking about what I just said. And I think that's part of the reason why I enjoyed my interview with Jess Henderson so much, because I read her book before that interview. And so I read this entire book that she had written, which essentially gave me that foundation for the conversation. Yeah. And that's like having like the key to a conversation where you have greater understanding, right? Like you and I can only have the conversations we do on a weekly basis because we've been talking to to each other for so yeah. long. And I think the internet short circuits that in so many ways, you know, that's why things are binary on the internet. That's why things are memified and simplified because you kind of have to, you have to allow people to project their definition into everything that you're saying. It's yeah. kind of a depressing statement. But have we actually tackled the argument of how fashion and socialism go hand in hand? Well, basically... Chomsky says that we can't, I feel like I said this, you know, we can't help being in society. And yes, fashion means participating in consumerism, but there's almost no way for us to extract ourselves from the society that we live in. Okay. And then there's two, two more points on top of that. One is he, he references this longtime socialist rallying cry his words, that is bread and roses and that we're not just about bare, meager survivalism. We all need bread, but we also all deserve roses, meaning beauty and joy, which can come in the form of fashion. And that's like a valid expression of creativity and human spirit. He does acknowledge that fashion is a particularly complicated form of creative expression because of consumerism, because people buy and sell fashion. I've said this before, right? In yeah. Creatives are really just marketers. Like, let's let's not beat around the bush. No, we don't have like, to. Like, as much as we think there's this romantic notion about creating things, we're only using it as a vehicle for someone to sell something. I don't think only. I don't think only. I think you can have something be created for both self-expression and marketing. Yeah. Like, I don't think it has to be like a solo purpose. But yes, I would say that a whole lot of creative work is marketing. Yeah. 
especially creative work that we do for money. The second part that I wanted to say that he tacks on to the fact that we can't exist outside of society is that he says, ultimately, consumer choices aren't our political weapon. Essentially, that participating or not participating in fashion is not a way to create enduring change. And that the only weapon, which his words again, weapon is organization and solidarity and coming together and withholding our labor. That's what get things done. I don't even I don't even believe in that either. Like, honestly, until because fashion exists as a byproduct of a biological inadequacy. Right. Like, and, okay, yeah, at its most base so how, form, how are like, you gonna, unless you solve that <laughs> many thousand years ago, if you can't solve that, then you're never going to get rid of fashion. It's always going to have a place. He doesn't say that, but he doesn't say we're getting rid of fashion. He's just saying that the entire question of like whether you participate or not yeah. in fashion is a contradiction to believing in socialism yeah. isn't worth our sustained attention. And these are my words, but, but right? That's, because I understand. I understand that part. But what I'm trying to say is that I guess the only thing I can see is some sort of broad sweeping change that pushes us into a more sustainable fashion industry. And that is a lot of things, right? Because I think let's agree that fashion will exist as long as the biology remains largely unchanged. So right now, what is the, is the argument? I think the argument more is about all the negativity and the negative externalities of capitalism and fashion, right? So I think you're now just trying to mitigate and reduce the global impact of fashion on this world, whether it's like how people are treated, how the world is treated, et cetera. Am I just taking this totally off the rails? Well, I think, I don't think that you necessarily disagree with what I'm saying or what, how I'm presenting Young, Young Chomsky's argument. It's yes, there can be change in the fashion industry, but it doesn't come through individual consumer choices. It hardly ever does. Yes. Correct. Yeah. And also when, when people attack people who participate in fashion, you know, it, when someone says, Hey, how come you can be so into fashion, but also be like pro-socialism and anti-capitalism. The correct answer is that's a distraction because you can be interested in fashion and participate in it without, without meaning that you are pro-capitalism. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. There are a lot of ways to participate in it that isn't directly related to like an exchange of money. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a, outcome of that that's the answer to the initial question on this newsletter anything around this article change how you look at fashion now going forward no it was relatively in line with what i thought but this is of interest to the greater theme which is the way blackbird spy plane writes their newsletters and presents it is definitely geared i feel like towards a younger demographic and I think that goes into this idea of like young people looking increasingly online for political ideology, for clarity in the way they think. And I feel like Blackbird's biplane does a good job of understanding that. Yeah. But I feel like we should talk a little bit more about that third article because that's one that the people in our discord highlighted mm -hmm. that they said they were interested yep. in. 
And the link is tangential. The link is internet and political ideology. But it was interesting. So just a reminder, it was the Taylor Lawrence New York Times article about Gen Zers saying Silicon Valley is elitist and exclusive. And essentially, a bunch of young people made a discord. They want to use it to build a more positive internet. That's in the words of one of the founders of the group. They think that Silicon Valley, the way it is right now, is exclusive, elitist, riddled with systemic problems, including sexism, ageism, and racism. And I had two questions. One was, what do the Gen Zers plan to do when they need venture capital money if they issue tech establishment? Right. Mm -hmm. And my second question was, they've already encountered controversy through kind of, I see it as replicating existing tech issues with sexism, ageism, and racism. So is it possible to learn things from what already exists without having to completely go out and form your own group? When I look at you know, the, what you just mentioned, if existing structures are too big or too rigid to maneuver and rebuild, then you have to start something new. So I actually don't think it's a bad thing that something is left behind or and or it just becomes for this particular use case. Now, obviously, don't hold me to that in everything. Like I think certain things should be open to the general public. But I think in this particular instance, it's that if this doesn't exist for you and these people aren't willing to change, is it a better use of your time to try to convince them or to build your own? And for me, I think building your own thing takes an immense amount of energy, power, resources, whatever it may be. But at the same time, no one else is going to service you and service the problems that you acutely know the best. So I don't, and this is the one thing, it's like, it's why demographic research all that this is why demographics and research into that all exist because typically we're bucketed into different mindsets and we all think relatively similarly when we share some similar commonalities right i don't really agree with marketing to demographics because i think it's just a shortcut to say people who were born in a certain year and are living under a certain condition so to say gen z is really just to say people who are the ages of 17 to 21 living in this current time of anxiety and economic uncertainty. And I don't really subscribe to the fact that like everyone in Gen Z and everyone in, that's a millennial has a specific approach or attitude to life. And therefore you can expect a certain type of behavior from them. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, well, I've also argued that same point too, where we're generally going through certain things at particular life stages and that becomes the unifying thought process. Yeah. Right. So my subject this week was a real mixed bag of things. I don't know who actually checks the show notes that listens to this podcast, but we will put all three articles in and you can go read them and find all of the things that we decided not to talk about. Sounds good. Let's move on.
My topic this week is not so simple, notes from a tech-free life. This is a story by Mark Boyle, who in the summer of 2016, completed the final touches on his straw cabin and turned off his phone and unplugged his laptop. So Boyle basically committed himself to a life without modern tech, which meant no running water, fossil fuels, clocks, electricity, and everything that requires those things to operate. So obviously that means no combustion engines, uh, no kettle, no electric kettles, all that other stuff. And his goal was to live off the land. And then eight years prior to that, he actually started to live without money. And as Mark put it, with a background in economics and business, I came to the sobering conclusion that at the heart of our ecological, geopolitical, social, and cultural malaise was our extreme disconnection from the sources of what we consume. Money, I reasoned, allowed us to never have to come eye to eye with the consequences of our consumerist ways. The wider the degrees of separation, the more room for abuse. Isn't it ironic that this also fits very closely with your topic? Yeah, it totally does. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really give a lot of context on Mark Boyle, but yeah, he's an economist. So for Mark, the move away from modern tech and money was, in essence, a pushback against industrialism. And there's a lot of reasons why, <laughs> I kind of chuckled, there's a lot of reasons that aren't revelational as to why we need to pull back from industrialism. And they include, but aren't limited to, and I'm going to need to take a deep ass breath for this. So they aren't limited to the, ma the mass extinction of species, resource wars, cultural imperialism, climate catastrophe, widespread surveillance, standardization, the colonization of wilderness and indigenous lands, the fragmentation of community, the automation of millions of jobs with the inevitable inequality, unemployment, and purposelessness that ensue, providing fertile grounds for demagogues to take control, the start decline in mental health, the rise in industrial scale illness such as cancer, heart disease, diabetes, depression, autoimmune diseases, and obesity, the tyranny of fast-paced, relentless communication, and the addictiveness of the hollow excitement, aka films, pornography, TV series, new products, celebrity gossip, dating websites, 24-7 news. Catch my breath. So basically, I'm going to take that. And anytime anyone asks what's wrong with the world, I'm just going to copy and paste this. But that's such a sad way to see life. And what's interesting is that everything you mentioned, I picture it in my mind. So, yeah. so vividly. And right? then I just want to go lie down. Yeah. So as Mark unplugged, <sighs> his goal was to reconnect with life and feel its pulse again. He wanted to really embrace and understand human connection and by, and I quote, being an animal. This way he could fully be human. That meant going through the discomforts of cold, hunger, and fear. Mm -hmm. In our modern day, we're so connected through digital technology, but by stripping away this layer, Mark found much deeper connections and he still corresponds. And it's not like he doesn't have human connections in the way you and I do through text or email, right? He still corresponds with his family through snail mail. And it's a whole different vibe than writing or shooting off a text or email. One interesting thing is like over the course of this piece, he kind of breaks down particular parts of his life. So in regards to time, he speaks about how time itself is now in greater abundance because there are fewer distractions. So although, yes, it takes longer to boil water because I need to go put on a few logs, et cetera, and I can't just plug something in, he actually is more focused on the task at hand and it gets done faster, or at least that's how he, he paints the picture. 
And then in conclusion, I mean, there's another concluding paragraph, but I thought this was the most interesting one. There's more diversity, less repetition. Mindfulness is no longer a spiritual luxury, but an economic necessity. While this may not be the most profitable career path, it's good for my own bottom line, happiness. Which I think is a nice way of ending. I actually think I really enjoyed the way this was written because it was both intellectual, but easy to understand. And I thought he did a good job of structuring it and laying out his particular thoughts. And I do think that every so often, my personal thoughts on this were every so often we go through the pros and cons of digital lives, right? We often focus on the negativity of things that are happening and we rarely promote the positivity. And I think that's the one thing that maybe the digital world has reinforced with us more so than the physical world. Uh, and I think it's because we see so many better things out there versus when we live in our own lives in an analog world, there's less reference to outside things. I don't think I follow. So in short, if I am living on the land and I'm chopping a tree, right? There's no reference to whether there's a better axe out there that I can go on Amazon check out with better reviews. Oh, so you feel like digital life exacerbates dissatisfaction because we see how life could be better. It's all referential. Like got it. Purely got referential. Got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Mm, so interesting. Interesting theory. Yeah. I mean, that's the way that I think. That's the. That's what I see as the modern ailment that we all endure is reference to others and people around us. Like, I think that if we cut that part out, most people would probably be a little bit happier with their lives. I'm trying to... Because I don't think that me seeing something, like, I don't, I think there's, there's a little bit of drive and aspiration that comes with seeing someone do something better than me. Or, you know, I think that in terms of things that are demonstrable and measurable like that person how let me let me think of an example like in terms of creativity yes i can go on instagram i can look at inspiration i don't think that is negative to my well-being mm -hmm. but me seeing someone successful in a demonstrable way that is through let's say fashion or luxury i don't think that itself or like traveling I don't think that's helpful for my life. Yes, it might create a level of aspiration for me, but yeah. at the same time, I don't, I don't really know if that is life additive. I don't know if it adds yeah. value to my life. Yeah, so yeah. That's no, I, where I agree I'm, with you. That that's where my reference comes into play. So no, I agree with you, but I just feel like my modern ailment, as I would describe it, is distraction, and I think that he talks about this too about how our attention has become monetized and that a lot of those bad things in the world come from us being distracted. Can you elaborate on what you mean by distraction in terms of negativity? Like, do you think the I things think that distract you are so negative? I so much. No, I don't think the things that distract me are negative. I think that we just have so much at our fingertips that it all creates this atmosphere where we're unable to focus on one thing and we're unable to really focus on what it is that we want. You know, as you said, like he said, his bottom line is happiness. I think we don't necessarily have to go to the extent that Boyle does to find happiness, but it's just much harder 
when we live in big cities and we're surrounded by technology and spend so much time in digital and virtual spaces because there's always just a hundred different things on our minds and possibilities. And what Boyle does is he removes all of these possibilities from his life, you know, and there's just this one really essential thing that he has to do, which is to survive, you know, to feed yeah. himself, to clothe himself, to keep living going. And because we don't have to worry about that, everything else suddenly becomes possible. And that is so, I mean, it's great. Yeah. It's like a positive, like everything being possible, but it's also really overwhelming. And I think that contributes to us getting less done or being less happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, the reason why I ask is that is the distraction component distracting us from achieving some goal that actually is not what's going to drive happiness, even if we do complete it. You know what I mean? Like, I think that that's what I'm trying to get at. Is like, well, what, if, what if it's just like a life distraction? What if our minds are so generally distracted? It's not like a moment of distraction, not like, oh, I'm currently distracted from my client work because I'm on Twitter. Okay. But like, mm -hmm. I'm talking about a, an, an, a life situation where you don't have clarity of mind. Yeah. That you're, makes you're sense. Just, yeah. yeah. And when you talked about this with me personally, when you were talking about your media diet and the yeah. fact that it felt like you were so much aware of what's happening that it kept you from, and stop me if I'm saying this wrong, but like kept you from being able to do anything about it because your awareness made you more aware of how little you could do to solve those problems. The next level of enlightenment after that is just letting go and realizing you can't really make that big sweeping decision that will change the world like you think or wish you could. Yeah. But how do you let go? Do you keep reading? Do you keep knowing and you learn to let go or does part of letting go, is it easier to let go if you don't know as much? I think it's easier to let go when you realize how stacked against you the cards are. Maybe that's a way of looking at it. Maybe. And I mean, everyone's going to assess this differently. But, you know, for me, I've never been of the mindset that I'm living too much of a digital native lifestyle, right? Yeah. I always felt that if it was that bad, it would self-regulate itself. Like something in my life would push and push me to like change something. Yeah. And I, I recognize not everyone has that. I mean, that's why addiction exists, right? Like some people don't have the ability to go and pull. And I... It's like a personality trait where I don't want anyone's help to do it. Like I need to do it on my own, which is kind of what I mentioned earlier. I, I mentioned this, that when it comes to learning and understanding how the world works, like I need to go through it and feel it myself, then just be told how it should yeah. be done. Yeah. I mean, I admire Boyle a lot and I think his life sounds extremely fascinating and I totally agree. Like the way he's written it, it's it's really, it's, it's great to read. It's a well-written article, but I also don't think that that way of life is for everyone. Actually, this reminded me a lot of Karen Rosencrantz and her book, City Quitting, which is a, Karen Rosencrantz spoke at Unexpected Connections 2020, and she wrote this book called City Quitting, which collected all these stories of creative people who chose to move away from major cities to isolated places, but 
the fact is that they actually were able to move and still lead creative lives. And these people didn't go to the extent that Boyle did for the most part. Like they still actually rely on the internet and digital tools in order to keep their creative careers going. Mm -hmm. But I think there is going, and she says this too. So this is not my new idea. Like she says, there's will increasingly be more people who choose this way of life. Yeah. And even though you feel like there's no need to reject, like you said, digital nativism right now, who knows what happens in five years. Yeah. That idea of spending so much time digitally, I also see as being a byproduct of circumstance. Because in a time and place where we lack physical spaces, we get lost or we need to get lost elsewhere, right? Yeah. And as long as that becomes the purveying movement that will have less space because there's more people and or we won't be able to have our own homes, we're perpetually renting, all that other stuff. I also think that contributes to where we spend our time because there's no sort of element of permanence, right? Yeah, that's a good point. Because for, I mean, I don't know how you feel because you were living in a place that was of permanence and now you're in a place of semi-permanence because you're technically going to be here for at least a year, but you could also be gone in a year. So I don't know how that influences how you set up your space too. Same thing for me, like, you know, when you're in a place that's rented, it's also not entirely yours. Hmm. This is such a fatalistic view, but I've brought this up in definitely more than one conversation within the last month. But I keep thinking about the fact that actually we're not promised tomorrow in the sense that we could die tomorrow to just be really blunt about it. You know, mm -hmm. I could not be on this earth tomorrow. And in light of that, I feel like I should make my space as much my own as possible because I can't plan for the future. And it's not just that I'm renting a place and therefore, you know, in a year my rent is up and we'll see what happens. But the fact that I don't even know what happens tomorrow. So in light of that, you know, it's just not. I feel like you should just treat every day as permanently as you can. Yeah. And I know that that is like the ultimate mental framework that you have to work yourself into because as humans, we love to plan and we want to know what's one year, five year, 10 years going to look like. But the reality is that we can't know. Yeah. And so therefore you have to see each day as the, the present that it is. Yeah. I feel... Like, uh, my whole podcast vibe is so much different here than when it was, you know, past weeks or just in general. Maybe it's just actually like just the setup is so different. I've been very aware of that, actually. As much as I like to think that I can just work on a coach forever, it does help to alleviate certain bottlenecks with a better setup and or convenience. Yeah. No way could you have. This is so basic, but I think just bodily comfort is going to affect your productivity. Yeah. The chair you're sitting on having the convenience of a setup that is the same every time you sit down at it. 
would not, I would not dismiss those very small things. Yeah. Should we cap things off for the week? I think that's a good place to wrap things up. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>